Welcome, everyone. Welcome. How are we doing today? Thank you for tuning in, as always. I appreciate y'all. Um, we have a cool topic here. We're going to be talking a little bit about thinking smarter. This is all coming from an Instagram comment I got. I thought it was an interesting comment, and it's a fair one. And I want to talk about it because I'll talk a little bit about Bayes' theorem and some thinking and how we how we use um, thinking to solve problems. <laughs> That's kind of a general way of putting it, but how we can think a little bit uh smarter in returns to in in regards to the facts that we accumulate and the decisions we make. But first and foremost, I want to start you all off with my ad, my seven day free trial to the always an athlete team. Uh, it's been pretty cool. We had a couple of people message me recently about how they were out playing sports again. They're doing something for the first time. And they're like, man, this is at the best I felt. I feel like my footwork's better. My movement's better. That's always really cool to hear. Um, I can play a small role in that. I've had people message me, hey, I'm you know 45, I'm 54, the best I've ever felt, 34. I feel like I'm back in my playing days. We've had athletes message me that as well. Um, we've had dunk PRs. We've had sprint PRs. We've had, I think, sprint PRs. Um, I know we've had bench press and squat PRs. We've had performance PRs, all this fun stuff. So really cool to play a, a small role in that. I know some coaches actually sign up to the program just so they can learn the programming itself. Like this week, we have what is called a flip-flop set so a flip-flop set is basically i have a sport squat so which is the first squat movement we're going to do we have six sets the first exercise is a sport squat six sets i think it's two reps try and move it fast and it's paired with two different exercises but instead of doing those exercises back to back it's a rocker jump and a band assisted jump you flip-flop so the first three sets are done with the rocker the last three sets are done with the band assisted jumps you can even do it actually flip-flop flip-flop if you guys are listening to that, it's probably really annoying because I was doing the hand gesture. But <laughs> the idea of going between the rocker and the band assisted jump. And it's a nice way to add a little bit of variability because it's not like I can sit here on uh, my high horse and claim that, oh, I know 10% body weight load is going to be superior than a 10% body weight reduction. They're probably very similar in nature to what they're trying to train. So they're similar enough. Well, let's just use them. Both, because maybe one covers a little bit of X a little bit more, and this one covers a little bit of Y a little bit more. So let's do them both. That's a flip-flop set. And that's what we have this week in our training program, this Monday, um, tomorrow, if you're listening to this on a Sunday. And we have some other fun stuff. So if you guys are curious, a seven-day free trial on the uh, Train Heroic app. Um, you can check it out. I actually probably put it in the show notes now. I've been really bad about doing that, but it'd probably be a smart decision to do that. So let's just do that, right? It's bad marketing, Max. Um, but you get the idea. So let's dive into the fun stuff as I pull up this. I want to pull up the exact thread of conversation we had. So I made a post about rhythm and timing and feel and how I think people make a mistake when they do plyometrics. That they're not of concern with the feel of the movement, the rhythm of the movement. They're just so concerned with the output. And you can see that, that when someone does a movement that, you know, they're just focused on the output. They look clunky at first, especially when they're first learning the movement. And so someone messaged me and was like, hey, we know that pretty or aesthetic movements don't correlate with athletics. So why would rhythm? And again, I don't know if that statement's necessarily true, but I entertained it for the conversation. So I responded and said, is there, you know, research saying pretty doesn't translate? Rhythm is merely a term used to describe muscle synchronization. Right? Rhythm is just the timing of muscles firing to produce a smooth force output. All movement have some neurological sequencing, a rhythm. The science behind that is strong. 
Is the rhythm a general or a specific skill? Well, that probably sits on a spectrum, right? Is this rhythm of jumping, you know, is there a universal rhythm of movement? Probably not. There are some probably similar rhythms. Um, think in my head, like, I imagine a lot of the rhythms of sprinting and single leg jumping, especially upright sprinting, single leg jumping, even the change of direction, all kind of fit within some form of rhythm because, again, a lot of those movements happen with each other. It's not like you're just changing direction in isolation. It's typically a run-up or some sort of sprint to it. And so the person responds, and this is where the interesting stuff happens. He goes, there's research supporting that movement a lot of lot. Sorry, I can't read and talk at the same time. There are some typos in here, so give me some leeway. There's research supporting that movement. There's a lot of movements that trainers are putting out. Um, and physios that have banned have been proved to not be linked to injury free. So that basically, this is riddled with typos. It's not his fault, I guess. Basically saying, look, there used to be a lot of exercises that people do nowadays. And, you know, PTs used to say you shouldn't do. And I'm assuming that's referencing some of the exercises you see on social media. Um, maybe like an extreme lunge or something like that. Where we aggregate, you know, the, the, the push for larger range of motions where maybe back in the day, people didn't push that kind of stuff. It says, so um, there's evidence that working on a certain technique of movement most of the time won't transfer to a sport. And that's also fair too. But the whole more of the story is like, look, he says, well, you're suggesting this exercise this rhythm this timing and there's people been wrong in the past you know how how do i navigate what is right and what is wrong i think that's a fair question because if you're looking at authorities for expert opinions and expert opinions sometimes are wrong how do we know that person is an authority so that's a great question this is a complex question it actually requires a lot of um not intuitive thinking but like it's bayes theorem thinking so basically you need to set out the group of evidence that you have in front of you, the confidence that you have in the evidence, the confidence that you have in someone speaking and the probability of mistake. So let's just give an example. How do we know and understand whether or not if someone who is an expert or an authority in an area is saying something that is truthful or 100% accurate? And we start off, I think, by saying nothing is 100% accurate. Everything they say is going to have a percent accuracy. It's probably not going to be 0%. It's probably not going to be 100%. But when they speak and they recommend something, the statement they have is going to have a percent level of correctness. And when applied, it's going to have a percent level of effect. For example, if a PT is to say, oh, we should do exercise X, that statement has a percent level of correctness. Now, that correctness is based on a situation. Like if you say, oh, someone shouldn't do an extreme someone shouldn't do a split squat, well, that might be dependent on the person. If the person had knee replacement and they're not able to move through that range of motion, then there might be mechanistic reasoning that's pretty firm as to why they shouldn't do that. Because they do that motion, there's a probability of injury. But if someone's healthy and they're fine and they want to do a lunge or whatever, that statement is less correct. So the statement itself as always needs to be contextualized. So that's rule number one. Rule number two is you have to understand the authority figure probably has a percent likelihood of being wrong. So almost as if you had a wheel of chance and you spun the wheel. Every, they say 20 statements, they might say two incorrect statements. So 10% of the time they're wrong. 
All right. That expert might say a lot of really good things, 18 good things that you can say are pretty accurate, but two things that are kind of inaccurate. Now, does the, the two things make those 18 things that they said wrong? No, the two things they say, said that were um, incorrect make them not an expert. Well, that's comparative. What is an expert? Because maybe if you took someone who's not an expert, they might say two things right and 18 things wrong. So what is an expert is relative to that person's ability to say things with more correctness. And that is like the authority or the someone who has an expert opinion. And that's why that's weighted heavier. Because if you just had a random chance and you just pick people off the street and then you found out their backgrounds and one was an expert in physical therapy and one knew nothing about physical therapy, who are you going to trust based on solving the problem or who's going to have a higher likelihood of being correct? It's going to be the expert in physical therapy. That doesn't mean the other person is going to be uh, never correct. It doesn't mean the expert is going to be always correct. But what happens so often, and this statement is a great statement, we point out the errors to justify our, our beliefs and to point out that they have the possibility of being wrong. Because people, for some reason, cannot grasp the fact that everything is based on percentage likelihoods. Almost everything. It's all about, um, you know, figuring out. Oops, I'm talking my microphone backwards. Sorry. I'm not sure why I did that. It's all about figuring out <laughs> what that person is saying and the percent likelihood of the of it being correct. So I, I'm going to try and shuffle in a couple of ideas really quick here because there's layers to this. But before I go any further, people don't like to think about that percent likelihood. They think, oh, if he's an expert authority, he must always be correct. And they don't recognize the percent. 90% of the time, they're right. 10% of the wrong. And they find out one of those 10%. Then they point out it all must be wrong. But under that framework, everyone is wrong because no one is 100% correct. As I said earlier, there's a 0%. There's the only thing that's absolute is no one's going to be absolutely correct about everything. That's like the one absolute we can probably bank on. And so if you, if any error or any incorrectness means that that person is in totality incorrect, then everyone is incorrect. And we have no possibility of making better decisions. And that's the key word, better decisions. So how do we make a better decision? How does a PT become an expert, that physical therapist? Well, it's about the aggregation of information and the accumulation of that information and evidence and weighing it. So an example would be you might read 10 research papers. You might be someone who's not an expert. And that PT might read 10 research papers and they are an expert. And they're able to synthesize that information and weigh the variables intuitively or based on their experiences to get a better probability of outcome. So you might read a bunch of research, they read a bunch of research, and they might extract and apply better and more, more and better information out of it because they have built up a large catalog of evidence through which they can connect it. So think about it like uh, a network phenomenon. I think the network phenomenon is the value of a network is the number of the people squared in it. So the larger the network, the more powerful it becomes. It's not linear. Your accumulation of information and how you retain it and how you process it is not linear. It works closer to a network. 
And the more connections you can draw, the higher power you can get out of the information that you accumulate. So that person might read 10 research papers, but because it's going to a catalog or a network filled with thousands and thousands of research papers, experience, anecdotes, evidence, it is higher value to them. In that, they can have and they can aggregate information more efficiently and weigh the information they read like, oh, hmm. Let's say they read those papers, and in those papers, there's one paper that stood out. It said, we should never back squat. It hurts your knees. The person whose other person is reading this, who's not an expert, reads that and says, hmm, that weird paper says, you know, I, I, I shouldn't back squat. I'll hurt my knees. It's the only paper they've ever read on back squatting. And the outcome was it was going to hurt their knees. And so to them, their only bit of evidence and information they can pull from is that information is that back squatting will hurt their knees. And so they think with 100% confidence that, oh, back squatting will hurt their knees. That PT, by the way, might have read a bunch of other papers like, oh, lunging didn't hurt your knees and front squats didn't hurt your knees. And this other paper that back squatted didn't hurt your knees. And the mechanisms behind squatting doesn't make sense to hurt your knees. So maybe this one paper, we should keep an eye on it. We shouldn't throw it away that said back squatting hurts your knees, but there might be more to it. The, the evidence is in more of support that it doesn't hurt your knees than it does hurt your knees. So they have the ability to weigh the evidence against other evidence, their experiences, their information. And this is so, so important. And this is why a little bit of information is dangerous. There's a classic line about that. Like it was a little bit goes a long ways in the I don't remember the exact line. There's something about it that basically says a little bit of information is dangerous. And what I mean by that is if you and you can see that the Dunning-Kruger effect where you read a little bit, you think you're an expert. The more you read, the less you realize you're an expert. And the more you more you read, the better you become at understanding stuff. Because when you first read stuff, the first 10 papers you read are not going to be contradictory. They're not probably going to be in the same topic. You're going to read 10 non-connected papers. And you're going to say, ooh, I've read 10 papers, therefore I know. And then you might read 100 papers. But in that time you read 100 papers, you come across 20 that contradict the previous 10 you just read. And now you go, I don't know anything. This doesn't make any sense at all. And then you read 1,000 papers and you start to realize, oh, there's principles here. There's mechanisms at play. I can now explain why that first paper, why these two apparently contradictory papers are not contradictory at all. They're actually both very informative in their own unique ways. And so that is the Dunning-Kruger effect explained, where you first read things, you don't have any contradiction. You don't have anything to weigh it against. Then the more you read it, everything is contradictory. Oh, how do I even navigate anything? But again, you're still scratching the surface because you're still looking at that paper as a truth. And the more you read it, you more understand principles, mechanisms, and how things actually function on a first principles basis. So that's why people stink with information. That's why there's an interesting theory right now. There's a time we're living in where there's so much information going on that people are actually being exposed to so much non incongruent information, a bunch of information that's not connected. And so they can find information that will never be contradicted because they're covering so many different topics. So you have a lot of people who think they have absolute opinions on certain things. And then people who are listening to that, there is comfort in finding that someone has an absolute opinion because apparently all these other authorities always, you know, they're at least wrong sometimes. And so this person appears to have found the answer. 
And so when you find someone that appears to find the answer, it makes you feel better because the more you learn about a subject, the more you realize, shoot, I don't know much about the subject. Then the more you want to be like, well, someone has to know about the subject. And it's just easier for someone else just to tell you the answer, even though that answer might be wrong, but they say it's correct because you reflect on yourself and like, well, I can't figure it out. Someone else might. And so it's a, it's a, it's an interesting philosophical conversation because then you start to talk about information exposure and then how people leverage that. You see a lot of time on social media, people speaking with extreme absoluteness. They bring out uniqueness. A uniqueness is a means of showing scarcity. If you show like, oh, this unique special exercise I'm doing or method I'm doing or piece of information or way of living I'm doing is so unique. And it's made me so beneficial, made me so helpful, made me so beneficial, made me help my life. It's helped me. It's benefited me. Well, then you're like, well, I've done all this other stuff that hasn't been beneficial. So I want to go there. And you're constantly chasing this like absolute figure of truth, which doesn't exist because anytime someone is wrong, you you use that as a means to showcase why you should find someone else who's correct. Versus if we just realize that what is an expert, an expert is someone who probably has a higher likelihood of correctness, but also with times they are incorrect. Then we can have experts talk and debate and understand things at a high level conversation with uh, the understanding that people are going to be wrong. But I guess that doesn't really happen. So um, I'll leave it there for today. It all stemmed from an interesting Instagram comment. And I wanted to share it with you all here because it was interesting. It was uh, made me think a little bit, which is why I bothered to respond, because I see that a lot. People go, oh, you know, they've been wrong. So how how do I know what's right? Someone's been wrong, then how do I know what's right? So hopefully you understand now that we need to have some idea of thinking of how we look at things. I don't really think I really touched on Bayes' theorem. In short, basically, you should have a constantly updating your level of correctness. I kind of talked about, about the PT, the Dunning-Kruger effect, almost where you're constantly updating your level of correctness based on the information you acquire, looking up facts. Different facts have different weights. The weights of those facts dictate the relevancy of it or the significance of those facts. You accumulate bits of information and evidence. You build a case in support of something, and you're constantly updating that case, your justification for something versus the absoluteness. So I hope that makes sense. I appreciate you all as always. Take care. I hope you enjoy. Peace out.